Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In. I'm your host Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema, with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Today's episode is all about the amazing filmography of Tamara Jenkins. I hope you all enjoy, and let's get right to it. First up, we have Tamara Jenkins' directing style. According to the article, 137 Minutes with Tamara Jenkins, the once-a-decade filmmaker on how to turn life's gloppiness into cinema, written by S.A. Rosenbaum for The Vulture, Jenkins states, I'm interested in what people say to each other when they're pushed to a kind of primitive state. They're in what looks like civilization, but then they're having some kind of primal, pulsy, gloppy, primordial something. It pushes human behavior to a degree where you really see what they're feeling. The most amazing thing about Jenkins' work is that she makes films that really explore what society either shies away from or creates as somewhat of a taboo subject in storytelling. A lot of these subjects would appear to be very cliche and taboo, especially for Tamara as a female filmmaker, because she's creating stories that not a lot of people want to see, and she highlights subjects that people may be uncomfortable seeing. An example of this is when she wrote her film The Slums of Beverly Hills at the Sundance Labs. She had a mentor that read her script who happened to be a male screenwriter and who happened to be very successful in the business. And for this particular scene, there was a young girl getting fitted for a bra. And this male screenwriter, as a mentor towards her, told Jenkins that she can't start a movie with a girl getting fitted for a bra. You can't waste five pages with a girl getting her first bra. And Jenkins confirmed that this was the worst piece of advice she had ever received and ended up keeping that scene in the film. I completely agree with Jenkins' decision to keep this scene in the movie. Because why not? What is so bad about that particular scene? All we're really seeing as an audience is a young teenage girl or a young pre-adolescent girl getting fitted for a bra. And that is a very normal part of transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. So why does something so normal have to be seen as something uncomfortable? In that context, it definitely makes me wonder what kind of a response she would have gotten if Jenkins sat down with a female mentor instead. If a female mentor were to look at the scene of a young girl getting fitted for a bra, it probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But because she sat across from a man, of course there's going to be a tension and there's going to be competition and conflict within that. Because the male perspective is obviously very different from the female perspective. In a lot of ways, Jenkins is a filmmaker that is incredibly self-aware of being in constant competition with her male counterparts, and she works hard to be able to create a level of cinema that hasn't been seen or taken as seriously as before because she's always going to be battling against the male perspective. With that being said, her films do feature strong female leads who are struggling with issues that somewhat relate to being a woman but can affect men as well which is also a very interesting take in and of itself, because most female-directed films are from the female gaze strictly featuring female conflicts. And Jenkins does flip those ideals on its head in a lot of ways and highlights those conflicts as human issues that have nothing to do with gender. 
The first movie we are going to talk about today is The Savages. This movie was written and directed by Tamara Jenkins and is about Wendy Savage, who is played by Laura Linney, and her brother John, who is played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who face the realities of familial responsibility as they begin to care for their ailing father, Lenny, played by Philip Bosco, who has dementia. The themes of this movie are family dysfunction, neuroticism, and paradoxical truths. According to the article, Stuck on a Family Hamster Wheel, Mile After Mile, Year After Year, written by Manola Dargis for the New York Times, the article states, Miss Jenkins never explains how or why or even if Lenny filled John and Wendy with his faults and what caused his wife, their mother, to run away. She omits the talk show psychology and instead lets the clues seep through the realistic-sounding snippets and strings of dialogue, through sentences, not speeches, questions, not confessions, and silences as lived in as the stories recognizably real and revelatory spaces. This quote leads us into our first theme of family dysfunction. A really important note that we'll come back to a little later is that Wendy is a playwright and John is a theater professor. They both live in separate households that often feel cluttered with disappointment because there's this constant underlying ability that they both have to overcompensate in order to please people. An example of this in the film is when Wendy is having an affair with a married man. She is so desperate for that human connection that she never got growing up that she has sex on an impulse in order to satisfy some kind of emotional need that she wasn't able to receive throughout her childhood. John's house, on the other hand, is filled with lots of books and papers that are scattered all over the floors of his home. And he is the type of person that craves escapism. He wants to continue to be buried in his work rather than face his reality. Lenny's household is very different from Wendy and John. He lives in a home in Arizona with his girlfriend. And in this home, he doesn't have any pictures of his children or his past anywhere around the home. We can easily tell straight away that he is a person that never wants to acknowledge that they were around or acknowledge that his kids played any significant part in his life. When Wendy and John reconnect with him, we see that there is this air of ambiguity between them because the audience never really knows what truly happened between them. We just assume based off of the constant pauses and the constant reactions that they have within their dynamic that something is completely off. And we see that in the way in which Wendy and John interact with each other. Because John is constantly cutting Wendy off. And he clearly wants to take the reins when it comes to caring for their father. And Wendy is a lot more emotional. And she feels very guilty about putting her father in a nursing home. So with Wendy and John, they're constantly battling each other. Because it's feelings of being closed off versus these overly felt emotions that Wendy doesn't know how to deal with. And they are clearly both being heavily impacted by this situational denial and this situational anxiety centered around the fact that they have to take care of their father, who they clearly have never gotten along with. Within this overwhelming sense of denial and anxiety that Wendy and John both have, this also comes with a desire for them to constantly want to aspire and please whoever they are around. An example of this in the film is how Wendy is able to use John as her next target. 
Wendy never feels like John thinks that her work as a writer is good enough. But she constantly goes to him for a sense of solace or some type of advice because she figures if she can't get validation from her dad, then she has to go to her brother because her brother is the only other family that she has in her life. The article continues to state, in their dyspeptic, quarrelsome fashion, the savages are blissfully neurotic, often very funny variations on J.M. Barry's fictional offspring, John and Wendy Darling, those charmed magical storybook children. If Miss Jenkins' middle-aged characters have never grown up in spirit and mind, if not in body, it isn't because they flew off to Neverland in a cloud of fairy dust, but because they did not and could not leave. This quote leads us into our theme of neuroticism. When we think of neuroticism, we think of a broad personality trait dimension that represents the degree to which a person experiences the world as distressing, threatening, and unsafe. In Lenny's case, due to his dementia, he is constantly confused and in a dazed state because he doesn't really understand or know who to trust. An example of this is when John and Wendy take him for a nursing home interview. Lenny is supposed to be answering the questions by himself as a way for the interviewer to assess how good his memory is. And she is there to really assess the severity of the situation. And Wendy is trying to give her dad the answers by mouthing the answers to him. It becomes evident very quickly that Lenny can't think for himself. He either can't think for himself because of John's over-controlling nature or because of Wendy's excessive guilt. And their own resentment, the resentment that Wendy and John have towards their father for never being there in an emotional way, also leads them to feel very neurotic towards this particular situation that they're in now. And a lot of this dysfunction breathes very unhealthy situations. Both Wendy and John continuously convince themselves that they are doing the right thing for their dad in order to ease any tension that might come their way. The article continues to state, Miss Jenkins doesn't imply that all that pain is a worthwhile price to pay for imagination, but she acknowledges the paradoxical truth that suffering can also be a source of inspiration, a way out of the childhood room where we sometimes call the past. For John, who is writing a book on Brett and his playwright sister, life has become something of a performance. This quote leads us into the theme of paradoxical truths. When we think of paradoxical truths, we think of a statement or proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. Wendy and John are characters that were given roles to play throughout their lives as a way to survive that absurdity of never really living up to their father's expectations. Their ability to confront illness and death sets a tone for how they are able to use those hardships as ways to heal their wounds. A lot of the confrontation that we see in the film coexists with truth, and a lot of the alienation that we see in the film coexists with denial. And really, Wendy and John are the center of those two terms in regards to how they affect the themes of the movie. Wendy and John can't face their reality unless there is some kind of anger behind it or some kind of drama to really bring them together. But if they completely alienate from 
whatever it is that they have to confront, then they're living in that denial forever. And they'll just be stuck in the rut of their past. And they will never truly heal from that past unless they confront whatever it is that they have to heal from. In other words, as an audience, we can clearly see that avoiding their issues never brought them back together. Their dad's illness is what brought them together, and that is what got them to tackle issues within their family that they thought they could never tackle, and they thought in a lot of ways that they could get away with not facing whatever it is that they had to confront. And that's a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. Wendy takes a lot of those confrontations to the next level by using those dysfunctional dynamics in her art. And in a lot of ways, that is a representation of how art is a reflection of real life. Wendy is able to take a lot of those truths that she had to face and she puts those in her play. John ends up going to Poland for a conference and looks forward to making amends with his girlfriend. And there's also this realization for Wendy and John as sister and brother that they both want what is best for each other in the end and they both love each other in their own way. It's just the life that they were so used to leading is what evidently pulled them apart. I think that when you go through a lot of trauma in your childhood, when you go through a lot of hardships, it's very easy to want to live in a little bubble and not want to face that reality because it's too painful to truly want to come to terms with. But because of how dysfunctional their family life was, the only way for them to face their issues was for them to really open themselves up and be vulnerable in places where they would never be able to be vulnerable before. Next up, we have the film Private Life. This movie was written and directed by Tamara Jenkins and is about an author named Rachel who is played by Katherine Hahn, who is undergoing multiple fertility therapies to get pregnant, putting her relationship with her husband Richard, played by Paul Giamatti, on edge. The themes of this movie are infertility, imperfectionism, and familial expectations. According to the article Private Life Review, Laughter, Tears, Great Actors, and the Infertility Blues, written by David Fear for Rolling Stone, the article states, There's something incredibly gratifying about watching Private Life not just as the story of these three, though it works better than decently as just that, but also a reminder of several things. Like, for example, back in the 90s and early aughts, there used to be many of these types of verbose, hyper-literate, actor-centric movies about actual human people at your local theaters, to the point where you thought they were breeding them in bulk in a farm upstate. This quote leads us into our first theme of infertility. The film overall highlights the exploration of the emotional effects of women that are unable to have children. And Jenkins, in her own creative and personal way, has created a space that is completely unglorified and almost ugly to a certain degree regarding the way in which the characters' interactions are completely dependent on their situation. With that being said, this film does a really amazing job of exploring the actuality of the situation in subtle ways. It's a really great example of how quiet pieces of cinema can solely focus on the humanity of the characters that are voiced by the actors. And it goes back to this idea of the difference between what people see when they look at mainstream cinema 
which is often something that does appear to be glorified and outrageous in some way, versus independent cinema, which often focuses more on human stories. An example of this in the film is a scene where Rachel and Richard tell their social worker about a failed adoption that they had recently just experienced. To set up the scene a little bit, they were told by a friend about this organization called Parent Portraits, where they are able to really be a part of the pregnancy process with the birth parent until they are able to adopt the child. They eventually found a match for them which they thought was perfect. They kept in touch with this young woman who they thought was pregnant and giving their child up for adoption throughout the whole entire what they thought was going to be the process of being able to bring this beautiful life into the world. But in reality, the young girl was not pregnant, and she was really just stringing them along. And they were warned at the beginning of this process that many young girls just use this method for attention-seeking of any kind. And the social worker goes on to remind them of the emotional scams that happen when people just kind of take this really important issue and use it for their own benefit and how that is really able to take a great toll on the parents and she goes on to tell Richard and Rachel that she admires them for staying together after this particular hardship. In reality Richard and Rachel do try to keep a certain image on the outside. They are the perfect example of Oh, it seems like we're together on this and it seems like we have it all down, but behind closed doors it's a very different story. Both are very quick to project their anger and resentment over not getting pregnant, and they both take the blame in their own way, but they don't want to give up trying. I think in a lot of ways they are a couple that doesn't want to give up on the potential hope of eventually becoming pregnant. And we see that a lot with the different dynamics in different scenes, especially when they're around large groups of people. They tend to come in as a unit and sit together as a unit, and it's very apparent that on the outside they do seem well-rounded and grounded in wherever it is they're at. But in reality, there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of build-up behind what they're going through. And at the same time, they don't want to tell a lot of people because they're in fear of a certain judgment and a certain lack of understanding that they fear that they will get from society. Next up we have the film Private Life. This movie was written and directed by Tamara Jenkins and is about an author named Rachel who is played by Katherine Hahn, who is undergoing multiple fertility therapies to get pregnant, putting her relationship with her husband Richard, played by Paul Giamatti, on edge. The themes of this movie are infertility, imperfectionism, and familial expectations. According to the article Private Life Review, Laughter, Tears, Great Actors, and the Infertility Blues, written by David Fear for Rolling Stone, the article states, There's something incredibly gratifying about watching Private Life not just as the story of these three, though it works better than decently as just that, but also a reminder of several things. Like, for example, back in the 90s and early aughts, there used to be many of these types of verbose, hyper-literate, actor-centric movies about actual human people at your local theaters, to the point where you thought they were breeding them in bulk in a farm upstate. This quote leads us into our first theme of infertility. The film overall highlights the exploration of the emotional effects of women that are unable to have children. 
And Jenkins, in her own creative and personal way, has created a space that is completely unglorified and almost ugly to a certain degree regarding the way in which the characters' interactions are completely dependent on their situation. With that being said, this film does a really amazing job of exploring the actuality of the situation in subtle ways. It's a really great example of how quiet pieces of cinema can solely focus on the humanity of the characters that are voiced by the actors. And it goes back to this idea of the difference between what people see when they look at mainstream cinema, which is often something that does appear to be glorified and outrageous in some way, versus independent cinema, which often focuses more on human stories. An example of this in the film is a scene where Rachel and Richard tell their social worker about a failed adoption that they had recently just experienced. To set up the scene a little bit, they were told by a friend about this organization called Parent Portraits, where they are able to really be a part of the pregnancy process with the birth parent until they are able to adopt the child. They eventually found a match for them which they thought was perfect. They kept in touch with this young woman who they thought was pregnant and giving their child up for adoption throughout the whole entire what they thought was going to be the process of being able to bring this beautiful life into the world. But in reality, the young girl was not pregnant, and she was really just stringing them along. And they were warned at the beginning of this process that many young girls just use this method for attention-seeking of any kind. And the social worker goes on to remind them of the emotional scams that happen when people just kind of take this really important issue and use it for their own benefit and how that is really able to take a great toll on the parents and she goes on to tell Richard and Rachel that she admires them for staying together after this particular hardship. In reality Richard and Rachel do try to keep a certain image on the outside. They are the perfect example of Oh, it seems like we're together on this and it seems like we have it all down, but behind closed doors it's a very different story. Both are very quick to project their anger and resentment over not getting pregnant, and they both take the blame in their own way, but they don't want to give up trying. I think in a lot of ways they are a couple that doesn't want to give up on the potential hope of eventually becoming pregnant, and we see that a lot with the different dynamics in different scenes, especially when they're around large groups of people. They tend to come in as a unit and sit together as a unit, and it's very apparent that on the outside they do seem well-rounded and grounded in wherever it is they're at. But in reality, there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of build-up behind what they're going through. And at the same time, they don't want to tell a lot of people because they're in fear of a certain judgment and a certain lack of understanding that they fear that they will get from society. According to the article Private Life Film Review, Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti shine as would-be parents written by Elizabeth Wiseman for The Wrap. The article states, The hardest personality trait for actors to embody is ordinary. It requires them to strip completely bare, relying on nothing but truth. Giamatti meets this challenge so deftly that Richard becomes improbably a unique everyman. We might hate him one minute, but we'll relate to him in the next. 
just like Rachel does, and Han is equally wonderful, as comfortable in silence as she is shifting between rapid and extreme emotions. She hides years of hurt beneath Rachel's smile, each wince and flash of anger suggesting countless more that have gone unexpressed. This quote leads us into the theme of imperfectionism. Rachel is somebody who is very quick to place the blame on any inconvenience she experiences during this process, whether it be doctors, whether it be doctor's appointments, whether it be scheduling of appointments, or any kind of judgment that she receives. And the biggest challenge that she faces throughout the film is battling her imperfect body. There comes a time at one point in the film where her doctor suggests having a donor be a substitute in the process of trying to get pregnant since she is unable. And we see very quickly that Rachel is in the midst of going through this overwhelming sense of loss because she begins to feel like she's not a part of the process of what it really means to bring a child into this world the way that she wanted to. An example of this is when Rachel and Richard leave the doctor's office after being told that they need another egg donor. Rachel feels angry at the thought of having another woman's eggs be a part of her child simply because her body can't handle that. And she becomes more agitated at Richard for considering that option because in his own desperation to have a child, he will do anything at this point. And I think in a lot of ways that conflict also shows that their desperation for having a child is completely different. Rachel is desperate in the sense that she just wants her body to work so she can get pregnant naturally. And Richard is desperate enough to be able to consider other options if this infertility issue continues to affect the fact that they can't get pregnant. In a lot of ways, it's easy to see that Rachel's desperation comes from the fact that she just wants some normalcy when it comes to starting a family because of the pressures that she has put on herself and the pressures that she's put on her husband and the pressures that he has put on her and just the overall societal pressure on top of individual pressures. There's a lot of underlying tension and there's a lot of underlying angst because they want to make it right and they want to make it work for their situation. Rachel and Richard's relationship with their niece Sadie is also another really important factor to consider in this film. They end up treating their step-niece like their surrogate daughter because Sadie's own relationship with her parents is incredibly fractured and she feels very alone and misunderstood by them. But being in Rachel and Richard's presence, she feels a lot more encouraged and a lot more freer to be able to speak her mind and tell them about whatever is going on in her life. Richard and Rachel do end up asking Sadie to be their donor, and she ends up agreeing. In a lot of ways, by Richard and Rachel asking Sadie to do this huge thing for them, Sadie ends up, for the first time in a really long time, feeling a sense of purpose and feeling a sense of satisfaction that she could give back to two people that have really inspired her and have really helped care for her in a lot of ways. But with those emotions comes a lot of self-sabotage as well, because when things don't go the way that they are supposed to go, Sadie takes it upon herself to try and make that happen, even if that ends up messing up her mental or physical health.
Another really important factor to consider about the theme of imperfectionism is the way that it is often seen as a societal issue that still carries a lot of weight and a lot of shame behind it. If we go back to talking about the battles of infertility, that as a whole does seem like an ordinary everyday issue from the outside. But when you really experience it for yourself, you have to deal with the realities of battling with the imperfections of your body. And the emotional tolls of how that impacts relationships is far from what is considered normal. These issues also can lead us into the theme of familial expectations. Throughout the process, we see that Sadie does become closer with Rachel and Richard, and they do start to act like a family unit naturally. There's this unconscious ability to just be there and be present for each other. And they end up believing in Sadie when she really doesn't believe in herself, and Sadie in return gives them complete support. And within that support, Sadie also gives Rachel and Richard a very unconscious view of parenting as well. They overthink more when discussing their troubles with having children than they do when they're just being with Sadie and talking to Sadie and really encouraging her. Being with her in a lot of ways also represents a lot of unfiltered and honest conversations that they have with each other, which Sadie really craves. Because of this closed-off relationship that she has with her parents, she's not able to really feel like she is in a safe enough space to really express herself. And Rachel and Richard give her that space to really come into her own and figure things out for herself. And that is a huge part of what the ending of this film represents. They are the ones that help Sadie get back into college. And she ends up thinking that they were the ones that put in a good word for her. But in reality, they didn't. She got in on her own. And we can tell how appreciative she is of that. And she really couldn't have done it without their support. And in the end, Rachel and Richard do try adoption again. And there's this great sense of ambiguity of hope that they can move on and heal with the hopes of having a child someday, despite whatever shame or judgment they may experience in the process from society or from their peers. Now moving on to some fun facts. For the Savages, director Tamara Jenkins contacted Carter Bruel to score the movie. Burrell had already committed himself to score No Country for Old Men, but recommended Stephen Trask instead. At one point, John says to Wendy, we're not in a Sam Shepard play. In the year 2000, Philip Seymour Hoffman co-starred on Broadway in True West, written by Sam Shepard. David Harbour cited Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance in this film as being an influence for his role in the film Black Widow. For Private Life after reading the script, Katherine Hahn was convinced that she had little chance of landing the lead, so she bought a plane ticket to New York City and took Tamara Jenkins out for dinner on a charm offense. Despite an incident with a spilled glass of wine, it worked. Tamara Jenkins' husband, Jim Taylor, wrote the screenplay for the film Sideways, which also stars Paul Giamatti. When reviewing a website of potential egg donors, one of the first candidates is listed as being from Park City, Utah. Private Life was released at the Sundance Film Festival, which is in Park City. Now moving on to some movie recommendations. 
First up, we have Sophia Loren in the film The Life Ahead. This is her latest movie, which was released on Netflix back in the year 2020, and her son, Eduardo Ponti, directed the film, and it is such a heartwarming story. Sophia Loren plays a character who seems very rough around the edges, but on the inside is very motherly and very protective over the children that she takes care of. And she ends up taking in this young boy off the streets. And it's about their relationship together and what happens throughout their time spent together. And it's very easy to look at this film and label it as Oscar bait because of how cheesy the story can be. But truth is, I'm a sucker for these kinds of films. I love the kinds of movies where you have characters that do seem very rough and tough on the outside, but on the inside they have a heart of gold and they're willing to really get to know a lot of troubled people and become sort of parental figures for them. And I think that this film did a really great job of highlighting that kind of issue. Next up, we have Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley in The Spectacular Now. This film is a little bit older. It's been almost 10 years since its release, but the chemistry that Miles Teller and Shailene Woodley have is completely off the charts. They work so well together, and Miles Teller plays a very sarcastic, blunt character in this movie, and Shailene Woodley's character is a lot shyer, and she tends to keep to herself more. So it was very interesting seeing how well they were able to complement each other and how well they were able to bounce off of each other's imperfections to create a really meaningful relationship. Last but not least, we have Carol Brunette, Walter Matthau, and Geraldine Page in the film Pete and Tilly. This was a very different role from anything else I've seen Carol Brunette in. Of course, whenever we think of Carol Brunette, we think of a really great amazing comedian who always makes us laugh, which she is, but it was really refreshing being able to see her take on a serious role, especially when it's about a mother of a child who's sick and who's going through a lot of medical issues, and to see how that takes a toll on her relationship with her husband in the movie, who was played by Walter Matthau, was so incredibly heavy but also very humbling to watch because in a lot of ways the essence of the story is about two imperfect people who happen to become a couple and then have a child together and have to navigate all of these new changes and challenges in their life and to see them come out on the other side stronger than ever was really refreshing and very eye-opening to see. As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, bringing you into the exciting world of cinema with some behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. Keep an eye out for our next episode on the colorful world of Wes Anderson.